John chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. This is God's word, eternally true. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father is life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Here ends our reading. We have a response of thankfulness. It's up here on the screen or in your bulletins, both the word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. We're looking at why a king is the gospel. Uh, all four gospels, you see Jesus present this, that the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's as we've talked about in past sermons. That's and if you've been in the church for any length of time, you, you know this. Jesus introduces this as the gospel. This is his sovereign declaration. He could have said anything. Any aspect of what was good about him, he could have said, but he consistently and overwhelmingly presents the gospel as the kingdom of God. Uh, this is because he's the son of David and the, the chosen and anointed king for God's people. Now, yeah, so... We, we don't do that in America, just to, to, to emphasize this point. We say the good news is that um, Jesus will forgive your sins if you believe in him. That's true, but that's not what Jesus chooses to say, free as he is, as Almighty God, to say any words he wants to say, unafraid of any human being to say any words he desires to say, even those words that led to his death. And so he chooses to say, Hear the good news. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, John's readers in probably around A.D. 90, so about 60 years after Jesus died and rose again, his readers, looks like from the Gospel of John, were Jewish. Jewish believers in Jesus. So they were Christians, but they had come from a Jewish background. And they knew, having grown up, knowing the Old Testament, what it meant for God's people to have a faithful king. And so as John makes the point through his gospel, and we see it especially in John 20, verses 30 and 31, where John says, here's why I wrote the gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is the whole reason John writes this gospel, a fourth gospel. He knew it was the fourth gospel. It's coming, it's coming out Probably Mark was the last one before this. And so he's writing this 21 years after three Gospels have already come out. You got 
Matthew probably around 46, and Luke uh, is writing around 60, and then 69, 68 is the Gospel of Mark. And so in 90, um, John is writing this, and so he's adding, you know, so John, as you read it, you realize this, is, this Gospel has a lot of new information that we don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's because John is saying, you know, they've heard all this other stuff already. Um, from all that I heard Jesus say and Jesus teach, and from what I see the church today needing, John, as he's writing this, what does the church need? What things did Jesus say, do, uh, and, and teach? What miracles did he perform that hadn't been previously recorded that will enable God's people now in A.D. 90, these Jewish Christians, to survive and to live in a way that glorifies God. And what they needed to be assured of was that, Christ, that Jesus was the Christ, which means the anointed one, and you anointed the king. So Jesus comes as the Christ, anointed by John the Baptist, declaring the kingdom of God. Now John's readers in AD 90 knew they understood what a faithful king, why a faithful king was good news for them. And John wanted them to know that all the good news that had been pre-shown in David and Solomon and other good kings in the, in the Old Testament was in Jesus and in an even greater way and that they, these original readers, were to look no farther. I write these things. I record these miraculous signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Quit looking for somebody else. He's the Christ, the Son of God, the King. Believe this. And as you believe this, know that you have life, eternal life uh, in this belief by believing this, eternal life in his name. And so we look at trying to get ourselves up to speed so we can extract from John's gospel what the original readers extracted from it. They understood all these things about the Old Testament king that, that we don't get taught typically um, growing up outside of a, a kingship, um, unless you're under King Charles now in, in, in uh, England, um, but also in, in, in a culture that doesn't understand what a king is, and in a church culture that's declared that the gospel is that Jesus will forgive your sins if you believe in him. Again, true, but not what Jesus announces to be the good news. It's, it's part of what a, having a king does for you, having your sins forgiven. But the big, big headline is that Jesus is king. And so we're walking through these things. And so your introduction there, I've just basically said for you, having a king, a king is the good news. That's your blank there. If you like filling out blanks in an outline, if you all just listen, that's fine too. But a king is the good news because a king accomplishes many benefits for his people. God establishes this in the Old Testament and he shows his people and he commands the king to be a certain thing and he shows his people through all the Old Testament writings what benefits the king had for them if they had a king and if that king were a faithful king. So a king accomplishes many benefits for his people. This is why Mark 1.15, Jesus declares the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1.15. And uh, John 12.13-15, this is why the Jewish people at Palm Sunday declare Jesus king as he comes in on Palm Sunday. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Is what they say on Palm Sunday, and they're rejoicing because they've been looking for a king. They said, "Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah?" Which meant for them, the King. So that's the good news. So we're pulling ourselves back up, understanding what the king meant to us because we don't understand that. It's been my, um, uh, you know, just a, a, a thing I've enjoyed studying for the past 25 years. Taught a Sunday school class to middle schoolers back in 97 when related uh, Princess Diana died during that Sunday school class. I remember arriving Sunday morning and she had just died. Um, there, but looking at all of the, the things, you know, Adam is given dominion. That's a king word over all creation. And, and you see this all through Genesis and various people, and it just develops and develops and develops till we get to Revelation 20 and 21, as we read this morning. So it's a huge, a huge thing and, and just a, a joy of study for me personally um, for, for these 25 years. Um, as we mentioned last week, we started into this idea of justice last week. And, and there's been a lot about justice in our society, you know, just this and just that, and a lot of concern that things are just. And, and um, uh, also a, a, a declaration or a desire for social justice is another topic that we've talked about. But as we talked about last week, too, do we have any more right now than five years ago? I don't know. Probably not. We're we're not we're not more unified. That's for sure. Um, and, and but but this cry for justice is a good thing. It's part of the image of God in us. Uh, we we saw you know, and you can see in your um, declaration of the gospel, um, second line there on the front page of your bulletin. The Lord is a God of of justice. And we're created in the image of God. And so justice is something something we, we long for um, in, in our lives. And But the thing is, if we look for justice in the world, we talked about this last week, we will be disappointed. Okay, So expect as a general thing in the world, you're going to get cheated and lied to and you won't get what you deserve when you deserve something good. Now, the good news is when you deserve something bad, you probably won't get penalized as much as you should <laughs> either. But but the world is not just. And so when you get treated justly or fairly, um, almost be in the mentality of considering it a bonus. You know, I earned this and I got it. Great. Wow. That actually worked. That happened when justice happens, when you're treated fairly. Uh, but. Um, it'll never net our world will never be just. And that's the, you know, this is the chasing at windmills or, or the, the guy who's trying to pick up the can and he keeps kicking it, you know, and he can never get, he can never pick up the can, um, that, that our world until Jesus comes back will always be full of injustices. And that's one thing, you know, through the, the, the centuries in various societies and cultures, uh, the young always you know, scream for justice and then they get a little bit older and say, I don't think this is ever going to really happen. And then they get a job. <laughs> uh, but the desire is good for justice, but it's a desire that will only be met when Jesus comes back. It, it, it's, it's something that's only true 
now in heaven where things are things are fair um jesus came to the earth was he fairly treated no and that's a lesson for us if you were as good as jesus you would have suffered great injustice and you're not as good as jesus <laughs> and so don't expect justice um, in this life but um number seven number seven Having a king is the good news, the gospel, because a king establishes and accomplishes justice. Um, we saw this in 1 Kings 3. Solomon, the king, he's the one people come to for justice. The king in Israel was the Supreme Court, the one where the final decision was made of justice. Uh, Psalm 72, which we read this morning in our call to worship, all the, all the verses that were selected from that psalm, all spoke of the justice that Solomon would bring to the people. And that's why the people, and so David was, that uh, was David's prayer for Solomon. You'll bring justice for the people. You'll care for the needy. You'll care for the overlooked. You won't allow bribery to go on. All these things, that's Psalm 72. And the people are joining David at Solomon's coronation that Solomon would mean this for his people. And so we see this in, in 1 Kings 3 with that uh, account of, of the two prostitutes who come to Solomon uh, and one of the prostitutes has had her child uh, killed and one has had her by herself and, and one has had her child stolen. So that's Psalm 72. Um, but we read here with Jesus in John 5, the passage we looked at this morning in John. Uh, Jesus says, make no mistake, the father judges no one. John 5, 22, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Um, this makes sense. Jesus is the king. He's the Supreme Court. He's the final court everyone will come to. And so that's what we saw as Jim read to us from Revelation 20, um, really verses 11 through 15. It's the scene of final judgment. Jesus is on his great white judgment throne and all people, John sees this in advance and he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open and the dead were judged according to what they had done. Um, they're standing before Jesus. So having a king is good news because the king establishes and accomplishes justice. So God is just. We saw it in Isaiah 30, 18. Um, and God accomplishes justice fully um in the end when he comes back but in part at the cross we talked about that last week he establishes all justice against you who have believed at the cross all your sins were in his body on the cross and god poured out his justice against jesus on the cross leaving out none of your sins first peter 2 24 all of our sins were in his body on the cross. This is Peter talking to the church, talking to all who believe. And that's God's justice. And that's Jesus as king establishing justice. I will punish all your sins, King Jesus says, on myself. I'll take them all upon myself and I'll take the penalty, the just penalty for your sins. Um, and, so, uh, and so each sin is punished appropriately at the cross. That's what we talked about uh, last week. So there's a sense that God's justice is passed for believers. It was dealt with justice 
at the cross. Uh, but justice comes in part now in his church and at the end of the age at final judgment. God is just in all three of these areas. If you've been around a while, that's the ICC. Um, so and justice in most nations with the king and with God's holy nation, the church is established by the king. Uh, ever since that role was taken on by Moses originally, who served kind of as a king in place for the people. And Moses is told by Jethro, remember in Exodus 18, Moses, I know you're judging every case, but this is going to wear you out. So have the nobles, the elders of the people, there were elders in the Old Testament, elders in the, in the Israel, the elders take the, the lesser cases. And if there are any cases too difficult for them, they can bring those cases to you. And so Moses sits as, as Supreme Court then, but that gets handed over um, to the king uh, once where we see David doing this. That was Second uh, Samuel 6. Um, the case is coming up before David, unbeknownst the case is against him. But the case Nathan brings to David is, is of this person who has one lamb, and the one lamb was stolen by the rich man who wanted to feed somebody who came and visited him. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his many, many sheep for the meal, steals the lamb from the, the poor man who can't say boo about it because he didn't have friends in, in powerful places. And so David renders judgment on that because, because he's the king. Solomon does this. Solomon does this as well. Um, so justice in 1 Kings 3. So um, justice is something God does and God, particularly the, the person of the Trinity who does justice, is Jesus. As king, he's the Supreme Court. So uh, your B in your outline, we did A last week, that Jesus establishes justice back on the cross against your sins. Now we're into how Jesus establishes justice today in our lives. And that's B. Uh, Jesus is king, establishes uh, justice. That's your line there, B. Uh, last week number was number one. Jesus established, past tense, established justice against the sins of the people at the cross. Romans 3.26 talks about this, that Jesus is uh, just and the justifier. Um, so Jesus was at, at, with the cross. Uh, and so that was last week. Now Jesus establishes, number two, fairness now in the church. Where can you expect, where, you, where should you expect justice? Now, it won't be perfect. But where should you expect justice? And it's in the church. Not in the world. They don't care about what God says. Uh, not in the world. They're dominated by sin nature without God's spirit. And that doesn't lead to a good place. Read Romans 7 if you're in question about that. Um, or, or Galatians 5. Where does the sin nature lead us to? All kinds of, of greed and taking advantage of people we can take advantage of. Uh, but in the church, we can expect, we should expect justice now. And A, in a couple of ways, how do we see justice in the church? A is through elders as they rule and direct the church. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17, elders rule the church. They direct it. They lead it. And so elders, as they rule and direct the church, make sure people are being treated fairly. Okay, so imagine there's a competition to teach um, fourth and fifth grade Sunday school. Okay, the elders are in charge of that. 
and they will decide that based on what's fair and just and right, what should be done, not based on political conniving or, or um, well, she or he is my, my good friend. Let's give it to him instead of this other person who's really more qualified or more appropriately serving to teach fourth and fifth grade Sunday school class. So elders need to establish that, and that's what you should expect from the elders from the session of our church, that things would be done, will be done fairly. Um, so number one, just a little message for elders. Uh, Matthew, tell your dad he's gone visiting that other birthday boy. Um, yes. Um, elders make sure all is fair in the church. Um, Peter addresses the elders in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, and, and he addresses this, that we care for the sheep as Christ's flock. Christ's sheep, the people for whom he's died, care for them and lead them in this way, shepherd them, protect them. Um, so in this world, you and the church expect justice, expect, expect things to be done fairly in the church. Okay, so if you're an elder in the church, you know that's our job and that's what we always talk about. Um, what do we call our non-pastor elders? Our non-pastor elders are called ruling elders. And as they rule, they, they sit in, they, they serve as Christ's um, hands and feet of this kingly aspect, this aspect of being a king that is of judging, of judging, of making sure things are, are fair, making sure things aren't being stolen from one person and, and given to another, whether uh, literally or uh, metaphorically there. So part of the job of uh, an elder in ruling uh, is to establish fairness in the church, whether it's approving church officers. Okay, so, you know, our, our process of, of church officers, we, we uh, design off of Acts chapter 6 when they needed deacons in the Jerusalem church. And the elders say to, you know, to the church, select uh, seven men from among you whom we may put in charge of this task to serve. Um, and so the, the Jerusalem church chooses these seven men. We have their names um, in Acts chapter 6 there. And then uh, this, uh, this group of seven come up before the elders there. They examine them and then they ordain them. They lay their hands upon these people. Uh, but it's not done by political conniving um, or um, stacking the, the court, so to speak. Let's put our friends in here so we can do whatever we want. Uh, but rather it's a, a just process where an officer in the church must have a, a sense of internal calling. I think God may be calling me to this office of deacon or, or this office of elder. Um, it also, in addition to this, has to have what we call the fun term here, you know what I'm going to say, manifest approbation of God's people. <laughs> that is, God's people must say, yeah, he'd be a good elder. He'd be a good deacon. And that's what we see in Acts 6. They bring these seven men forward um, and they say, these, these seven would be good. They're full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. We think we, they should be put in charge of this task. But then in addition to the people saying, yeah, these guys, it's the elders, the, the apostles at the time who were jointly apostles and elders, uh, as we see in 1 Peter 5 at the beginning there, the uh, apostles were elders, um, that the elders approved these men. And so, it can be that the congregation says, we like this guy because 
you know, he looks like um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, we think he's cool. But then the elders are this, lot, this last stopgap measure to make sure things are fair. Maybe there's someone else in the church who is mature in his faith, who's a good leader and shepherd of people, who loves the sheep, who should be an elder. Um, and this guy who's good-looking, the Absalom, the good-looking guy with the great, the great face, great hair, and the, mu the muscles, um, that, that uh, this guy really doesn't care for the sheep. He kind of cares about himself and that's why he's so good looking or whatever. <laughs> whatever. But, the, but the elders make sure things are fair, that people don't get into the office of deacon or elder because they have connections or, or, or because this would, would allow us to do something or because they won't disagree with us and we can do whatever we want. Um, that's, the elders, uh, that's the elder's job. But it's also the elder's uh, job if there are disputes among the congregation. And we'll see this as Paul interacts with the Corinthian congregation in both of his letters to the Corinthians, that there were actual church court cases that came out. One person who had done something just immoral, or in another case, one person who had done something uh, uh, um, violating another person in the church. And it was the elders who were to take this and to uh, administrate justice here. And they're to say to the person in the wrong, no, 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 no. You did this and this was wrong. You need to compensate this person for the wrong that you've done to him. And, and Paul rebukes the church and its elders for allowing that case to go outside the church to a secular court. He says to them, don't you realize, you'll, you know, at the, at the end you'll be judges. And so you should take care of this stuff now among you. And so it's especially important for the officers of the church, especially the elders who deal with this stuff, this kingly aspect of, of providing justice in the church, that they deal with things without partiality. And so we see in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, great condemnation about the judges in Israel showing partiality, uh, about them not giving um, justice to those who are kind of the defenseless in society. Uh, widows, um, the uh, children, orphans, people who don't have someone to protect them, to stand up for them. Uh, the judges in Israel were to be unlike the judges in all the other nations. The judges in Israel were to provide clear, pure, um, pure justice without partiality, no matter who was coming before them, making sure things were and so elders know that's a view and, and you members of the congregation who are elders know that that's the standard you're to hold the elders, the ruling elders and me as a teaching elder, elder too, that we show no impartiality and then we make sure things are fair. So Jesus provides that for you in the church. There's one place in this earth where you should be able to expect justice and fairness and that things are being done fairly. You can't expect it outside the church. If it happens outside the church, it's a bonus. But inside the church, it's to be the expectation. It's the standard. God doesn't say it's okay for injustice to go on inside the church. Uh, so it happens through the elders, but it also happens justice inside the church in another way. And that's your next point here, your B. Through you, or you can write in there, through me and the other members of the church. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Part of loving people is caring that they're treated fairly. Okay, so it's not just the elders' responsibility in the church for justice, for fairness to happen in the church, but you're a part of that as well. You know, in the, a lot of times in the more informal senses of things, you're making sure things are treated fairly. So Sunday school teachers are doing that as they're teaching Sunday school, but even in just conversations we're having together, making sure people are treated fairly and everyone's included and no one's left out for any reason. Um, so through you and other members of the church, uh, uh, justice or fairness happens. Um, how so? Number one there, B1. Uh, his word and his spirit, his word and his spirit, uh, being present in the minds and lives of his people, moves us, moves us to treat each other fairly. So God's word commands us to be fair and just because God is fair and just. and We're created in his image and he wants us, especially in the church, to be that way with each other and we're enabled to be that way with each other because god's spirit lives in us so we've got the word this tino with the tino over at the very end of sunday school this morning we have the word commanding us how to be like god fair and just and we have a spirit enabling us to be fair and just we might leave somebody out if we didn't have god's spirit because we just like this person better so we include them and do things and go and talk with them. But instead, because God's spirit is in us, we include others and we talk with them and, and we see how we can minister to them as well as to the ones we more naturally like. But listen to Galatians 5, 22 and 23 in this context. What does the spirit do in your life? Well, the spirit does this. The fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What this means, because these fruits of the Spirit are in your life, it'll mean that you're showing no favoritism to somebody. Because you, you, you love everyone in the church. You have self-control that checks any favoritism that might naturally be in you. Because the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, as well as as well as love. It'll mean that you're not uh, showing any racism or sexism. It means you'll applaud the doing of good and reward it. You'll encourage the doing of good by others in the church, even if it means someone else is getting glory and you're not, because you love that person. And God's Spirit is producing that love for that person um, in, in you. Um, it, the having the spirit in you means that if you do bad, if you sin, you confess it and apologize. That's part of justice. I have done wrong. That's real justice, right? You know, in a secular court, if someone is declared guilty for what they did to you and they harmed you and they're penalized in a certain way, there's still something unsatisfying about that. As satisfying as that is, and it is satisfying, but it's still unsatisfying unless that person looks to you after that conviction and says, the court is right. I have done wrong to you. And I did wrong to you because, and he lists or she lists the reasons, and I've harmed you and I'm sorry. 
and I'm going to make it up to you. And then they do. That's satisfaction. When there's this heart confession of sin, that's justice. You've done me wrong and you're admitting that you did wrong. That's what we do as parents. You know, Bobby apologized to Bob. Bobby apologized to uh, Bob. I've got two sons. They're both named Robert. Little, little, little George Foreman there. Um, <laughs> but we say apologize. And we're like, no, and mean it. <laughs> and, and, and that's it. That's part of justice. This confession, this, this grief over the fact that I've violated you. I've sinned against you. I've stomped on on your rights as a person or something you should have had. I took it from you. That's part of justice. And so when we confess our sins to one another and say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? That's you doing justice in the church. And, And hopefully that's just coming up because you're convicted by God's word and the spirit of God is within you. And you say, you know what? My reputation doesn't matter. This person does. So I need to make sure this person's okay. And if they think, you know, I'm less because of that, well, I am. (laughs) They just know it. (laughs) Um, So we make up for it to the person we've transgressed. Um, Old Testament law is all about that. You know, if you're borrowing someone's ox and you don't pay attention to it, falls into a ditch, breaks its leg, and then is not able to work anymore. You make up for it. And the law tells, tells you exactly what you owe to that person in real terms. I don't know what it is. You give them another ox or two oxes or four oxen or something like that. Uh, but the law is about that, that God's people were to be just toward one another. When they harmed one another, the, uh, the justice was restorative. Um, now, number two, so, so be, be a part of this. Have God's spirit move you to be just toward other people, to make sure other people in the church are, are treated, being treated fairly. Now, number two, also in your life outside the church, also in your life outside the church as well, be fair. Be fair, be just, because Jesus, your king, is fair and just. Colossians 4.1 says, masters, bosses, those of you who have authority over other people. Paul says, provide your servants, your employees, with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And so outside the church, you're to reflect the fact that God is just. And if you have employees under you or people you're responsible for or people who answer to you, You're to treat them with fairness or justice. Or as a teacher, you're to treat the students with fairness and justice and make sure fairness happens among them because our king is fair and just. So we make our corners of the world a little bit more bright as we distribute justice in the world. Wherever we have the ability or the the authority to do it, we make things just. We as Christians don't say, oh, the world's unfair, get un- get used to it. If we can do something about it, we make it fair. Because that's the way our king is, and we are to be Christ-like, king-like, Jesus-like in our actions. Um, so you're in your position as boss or teacher or coach or judge or customer service representative, 
government worker, um, whatever it is, any person in position of authority, make things fair, do this. Absolutely, make this dark world a little bit better of a place. Um, judging not by religion or skin color or nationality or sports team favorite. It means I got to treat Michigan people well, even if they come into the church uh, or, or education level or wealth or lack thereof. No partiality in the way you treat people. Love people because they bear God's image. Even non-believers, even atheists who hate Jesus and talk to other people about it, they bear God's they get, bear God's image, and you're to treat them with justice. Do what's fair to them. Okay, number three. Number three. So that's justice now. There's justice in the church and justice by Christian people who have authority in the world, as far as we can do it. That's justice now. So there's justice in the cross for all those who believe. There's justice now inside the church and by those who are Christians. And then thirdly, in the future, in the future, Jesus as king will establish complete justice when he returns. Jesus as king will establish complete justice when he returns with final judgment. So Jesus, when he returns, he establishes final judgment. And that's what we, we, we saw Jim read to us from Revelation 20, 11. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. And this is this is Jesus and all the dead are gathered before him and he distributes justice there. This is the king's job. So you see that final justice. There's a throne there. There's a king sitting on his throne, establishing justice and final justice for everything. So A, there in your outline, Jesus as king, Jesus as king is judge. Jesus as king is judge. Recognize this. It's Jesus, not the Father. Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, who is judge, final judge. So again, John 5, 22, our text this morning. Moreover, Jesus says the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And then in 547, he says, but since you uh, do not believe, uh, uh, sorry, five, uh, 527, he says the same thing, that he has entrusted all judgment to me. Um, Revelation 1911, Jesus, when he comes back, uh, John sees this scene, has this vision, and he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Guess who that is? <laughs> Sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. This is Jesus riding on his white horse, uh, Faithful and True. And here's, so here's the full sentence now that John writes and scripturated. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges. Jesus comes back. And with justice, he judges. Now, note this about Jesus' justice. B, B. Jesus just judges fairly. Felt like end of uh, Temple of Doom there. <laughs> he judged poorly. <laughs> he judged poorly. 
uh, Jesus judges fairly with 100% accuracy. I want you to understand this about final judgment and about God's justice. It's 100% accurate. Accurate to the sin, accurate to the motivation of the smallest sin, accurate to the circumstances of the motivation of the smallest sin. 100% accurate. Jesus doesn't judge, he doesn't condemn, he doesn't punish an ounce more than any sin deserves. And so you've all heard that falsehood, all sin is sin. It's not. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's not. Jesus says, better for him had he never been born. Better. That's a comparative adjective for you grammar people. <laughs> it means if you're going to be judged, it's better that you not mislead any of these little ones. If you're never going to believe, at least don't turn any, anyone away from me. If you're never going to believe in me, well, just live a sinful life. But don't tell people not to believe in me. It would be better for you never to have been born than to do that. Because your judgment's going to be worse. Uh, or in regard to, to reward, same thing on the, on the positive side. You know, those who pray out in public. You know, so everyone sees them. What does Jesus say? They have received their reward in full. Or Jesus says things like, and when this person acts in this faithful way, for great is his reward in heaven. So on both sides at final judgment, both in rewarding believers for the good things they've done and for punishing those who have done wrong, who aren't believers, Jesus is 100% fair, 100% accurate, and no one after final judgment will have any single legitimate complaint, not even in the smallest shadow of a shade of a percentage, if such can be. <laughs> but you get the idea there. Jesus, Jesus judges fairly with 100% accuracy, remembering all deeds and words, that's your blank, remembering all deeds and words and punishing each person with the correct and just measure of punishment. So it's not, that's a falsehood. All hell is hell. All lake of fire is lake of fire. No, God is fair. Jesus is fair. He is not punishing Hitler with the same amount of punishment that he's giving to some grandmother who's never believed in Jesus, who was always nice to her grandkids and gave apple pie to the kids in the neighborhood. That would be unfair, wouldn't it? Six million Jews killed. Six million people who bear the image of God Hitler was responsible for killing. It would not be just of Jesus to punish Hitler the same he punishes the common non-believer. Right? Jesus is just. He's fair. Listen to these verses if you don't believe me so far. John 5.30. Jesus says, this is part of our, the end of our passage, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Listen to this from Solomon, the most just of all, the one who was asked for, you can have anything you want, Solomon, in, in the first part of 1 Kings 3. Anything you want. And he asked for wisdom to administer justice. That's the term. Wisdom to administer justice. Here's what he says at the end of his life, the last verse probably of Scripture that Solomon wrote. 
Ecclesiastes 12, 14. It's the last verse of the book. For God will bring every deed, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That's Solomon's advice at the end of his life. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every deed into judgment, even every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That's how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. Jeremiah 17.10. This is what Jeremiah uh, says around um, um, uh, Jeremiah. So that's about 600 BC. Jeremiah 17.10. God says this through Jeremiah. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct according to what his deeds deserve. God doesn't just judge according to appearances, which is one of the things he condemns men for. You judge according to appearances, what it seems like, the fake. But God says, I search the heart. I examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve, to what his deeds deserve. Not a blanket justice that goes out to all people, but each man, each woman examines his or her heart, examines his or her mind to uh, uh, spread out justice upon them according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Second Corinthians 5.10, to get into the New Testament. Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him, not what is due for his neighbor, but what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, we know as Christians what was due for us that was bad, done in the body, saw justice on the cross. And that's over. But for those who don't believe in Jesus, they stand at final judgment and they receive, they receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's most likely one of the reasons final judgment doesn't happen until all bodies have been resurrected and everybody stands before the throne. They are judged in the bodies they committed the sins in. That hand did this. That hand did this. That tongue said this. See the justice of it. The, you know, the, the smoking gun is there. Because the person in his body is there standing before the throne, right? So Revelation 20, 12, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, where the dead souls are, gave up the dead that were in them. So what is due him according to the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then we get to Revelation 20, 12. Listen to this, the, the absolute accurate justice of Jesus as he sits on his judgment throne at final judgment. John says, and I saw the dead, great and small, everybody. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, the king. And books were opened. Okay, and we put a pause on what those books contained. And then he says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
That's the book that contains all the names of the elect, those who believed. And then it says this, the dead were judged according to what they had done. Well, who says? Well, it goes on. The, the dead were judged according to what was done as recorded in the books. Everything everyone has done is recorded in these books kept by Jesus, the final judge. And these books are opened. Did you hear that? And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So it's like Ed Asner, you know? I know what you want. You know, you want that, what? That huffy whatever skateboard, whatever that is, an elf. You know, and the books are open. You did this. It's recorded here in the books. Are you denying it? No, I did it. <laughs> That's what happens at final judgment. But it goes on, verse verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So souls and bodies. Okay. Uh, and each person, each person was judged according to what he had done. Okay, so it's not, it's not generalized judgment. Okay, so I'm just, I'm, I am beating this thing and beating this thing and beating this thing. So you get it. God is just. Jesus is just. And so this is why we talk about if you love your neighbor and he says, I'm going to leave my wife and my kids. That's going to get recorded in the books. And he will suffer in eternity if he doesn't turn to Jesus for abandoning his kids and his wife. And so because you love your neighbor, even if your neighbor's not, not a Christian and never will be, you give him good reasons to stay there. This will be financially bad for you. It's going to be horrible starting over again. You're going to have to live in an apartment. You're going to have to arrange for where your kids are going to stay when they visit you on weekends. You're going to have to go through this court proceeding, that kind of thing. And, and just, you know, some of, some of us have been through divorce and, and experienced divorce, whether it's our parents or ourselves. And, you know, it's an awful thing. You know, and if we can avoid it, great. Um, but if someone's going to sinfully just abandon their family, um, we, 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 we beg them. We say, don't do that because we, we love them uh, because uh, we're judged according. We're judged according to what what we've done. OK, uh, so this C, C. Because Jesus established justice already on the cross against Christians who've harmed you. And because he will establish complete justice against non-believers who have harmed you. Uh, because he is just in the justice giver. Now here's where your sentence starts on C. The fact that Jesus judges fairly and completely. Here's the practice my, my brother says. John, just give me the, give me the take home. How does this affect you that Jesus is 100% accurate in his judgment? That he's already punished the sins that Christians have committed against you, right? And those are the sins that hurt the most, all right? When our brothers and sisters in Christ, they, 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 they harm us. Um, but he's already judged, he's already condemned those upon Jesus on the cross. And that he will, for non-believers... He will 100% accurately dispense justice and condemnation and punishment against those who have harmed you when final justice comes. How does that affect you now and how you live now? So the fact that Jesus judges fairly and completely, seeing all things, recording all things in the books, 
that have been done in the body, with the tongue, with the hands, whatever. Um, because you'll judge these all at final judgment, this enables you not, that's your blank, this enables you not to take your own vengeance, but to forgive. The good news is you're not the judge. The good news is you're not the um, the one who bears the axe <laughs> uh, of the government uh, at the guillotine or at the axing chopping block or whatever whatever that thing is it's called. But the fact that Jesus judges fairly and completely at final judgment enables you not to take your own vengeance, but to forgive. So Mark eleven twenty five. And when you stand praying, Jesus says, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. Jesus doesn't say pretend it didn't happen. Jesus says, okay, forgive this person. They've done something to you. And so you're holding it against them. But that's not the right response. Because I am king and final judge and I will punish it. Don't. Hold that grudge against him as an enacting of a penalty against him of some kind. Your job, because you're not the judge, and it's not time for judgment yet. That's final judgment. It's not time for judgment. You forgive him. So again, Mark eleven twenty five. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, so they've done something wrong to you, forgive him, Jesus says. Luke eleven four. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. It's part of the Lord's prayer. Right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Part of who we are as Christians is we're people who forgive. We're people who forgive. Romans 12, 17. Paul writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's what Paul says to the Christians in Rome. Do not repay evil for evil. In other words, don't take justice. He's not saying don't do evil to people. He's saying if someone does evil to you, don't repay them with evil. You don't do justice to that person that is enact justice, enact condemnation, enact punishment upon a person, whether it's verbal or relational or, or, you, or you hit them across the face or whatever it is, or some kind of economic thing you do to them. Paul says, Romans 12, 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And in verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Final judgment, Jesus. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, saith the Lord. Hear the emphasis there. It is mine to revenge, I will repay, saith the Lord. Not you, not you. Verse 20 of, Revel or of Romans 12. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, if there's no justice coming, that's hard to do. Right? Because you want to give out justice. That's not fair. It's right. Just like when we were little kids, one of our kids said once, but that's not fair. And we've all said that as kids. You know, something happens to us and, and somebody says, but that's not fair. And that's right to say that. That's not fair. And if final justice were not coming, if Jesus were not 100% accurate in his justice, if he were not recording every sin done against us in his books, then we would want to accomplish justice against that thing that Jesus forgot about. But the news is Jesus is king and he hasn't forgot about 
anything, forgotten about anything that's been done against you. And he cares for you. He cares that you've been violated. And even non-believers who bear his image, he cares about that too. He's going to punish every sin, even sins done against non-believers, because he cares for his image that every single person bears. He's completely just. And because he's completely just, we don't have to take vengeance. Because vengeance is coming. And so Paul says, leave room for my wrath, says the Lord. Wrath is coming. So, so, so let it be. Forgive. Don't hold a grudge against somebody. Don't take vengeance. Don't, don't seek revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Um, second, second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six and seven. We didn't hit this. It's one of my favorites. It keeps me in check. Here's what Paul writes to Christians who are being mistreated by non-Christians. For their faith in Jesus. Second, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. God is just. He will trouble those who have troubled you so you don't trouble them. Leave them alone. Give them a drink if they're thirsty. Feed them if they're hungry. Because God is just and he will trouble those who have troubled you. And, and, and I think because God is just, you know, God says in the Old Testament to the government, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So if somebody, you know, cuts you off in traffic, I think somehow in, in the lake of fire, they're going to get cut off in traffic too. <laughs> it's going to be just. Um, it's going to be just. Um, Jesus sees the wrong that has been and is being done to you, and he will pay back those who've harmed you with accurate justice, inflicting back on the one who's harmed you the pain you've experienced by their doing. I want you to know this. Get comfortable with the fact God is just. He doesn't just wave a wand and say, oh, everybody's good at the end. He's just, and he pays back, and he pays back with wrath. So Paul says, leave room for God's wrath. Don't take revenge. So you don't have to, nor should you take vengeance and dole out punishment upon those who've harmed you. God says, I leave room for God's wrath, for it is written in his mind to revenge, avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So this, here, going back to your outline now, this that you have a king who will fairly punish those who've harmed you is good news. It's good news because one, it's fair and that's good. Number one, it's fair and our souls long for that. The saints who have died because of their faith in Jesus in Revelation 6, 10 are saying to Jesus around his throne, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? They're crying out for justice, but they know it's Jesus, uh, Jesus to carry out. So it's fair and our, our souls long for justice. So it's good that our king is a king and that he's a just king with final justice waiting to be unveiled. And then number two, 
Um, it's good news that Jesus is king and that he pays back fairly, 100% accurately, because often payback is a crime. <laughs> if you seek payback, you know, I've thought about things I want to do to somebody who, who, you know, who's done something to me, and I say, but if I get caught, I'd get arrested. <laughs> and so it's good news that you don't have to pay back because that keeps you out of trouble. So often payback is a crime would get you in trouble. That's your next blank. Um, one of you told me you had a brilliant solution to somebody who's really been a bother to you, and that's to hide a bag of potatoes in their house somewhere. <laughs> you know how potatoes smell when they get rotten? It's awful. It's really awful, and it, like, stains the containers they're in or the floor, and that smells there. It's just awful, and then when you pull it out, it's, like, juicy, and so it's dripping all over things. The juice gets on your fingers. It's terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the payback is often a crime will get you in trouble or would at least make you look bad. That's your blank there. It'll make you look bad or petty, P-E-T-T-Y. It'll make you look petty or small. Um, Deuteronomy 19, chapter 6, uh, gets at this. Numbers 35, 24 through 27, get at this, that, that people aren't to take their own vengeance because their vengeance may be wrong. And so there's this idea in the Old Testament, and it's established in Old Testament Israel, that there were these cities of refuge, all three, and they were evenly spaced in Israel, so that if somebody accidentally killed somebody, you know, they're chopping wood and their axe head flies off and, and the axe head goes and it hits somebody in the forehead and they die. Um, that the, the, the relative of that person may come after the one whose axe head flew off. But the one who had the axe head that flew off, he can flee to the city of refuge and be protected by the people of that city until a trial would happen. And it would be determined, did he mean to kill this person or did the axe head just fly off and he didn't mean to kill him? Uh, but it, it says that they would have these cities of refuge evenly spaced in Israel, in the promised land, uh, so that there wouldn't be this injustice done by somebody taking their, taking their own vengeance. And then that act of vengeance would itself be a crime. It would be murder, right? Intentional killing of somebody uh, that would be unjust. Um, yeah, you, some of you know when I was a senior, I've told this story before, so you might know. When I was a senior in high school, I was coming back from a, a concussion, and so I got to play this half game against Worthington, which is a big, they were great soccer school. And um, somebody, I, I passed the ball up front, and we were charging down the field, and I was charging in to get to the penalty box, so when the left wing crossed the ball in, I could you know, maybe get my foot on it and try to try to score. And you can see my dad was videotaping. I can show you sometime if you're at my house. Uh, that as, as yeah, after I pass this ball, um, I'm running down the field and, and this Worthington guy has grabbed the back of my jersey and he's holding it. And you can see this on videotape. I'm running and my jersey's like this and this guy's holding my jersey. And so what did I do? I, you know, I'm running and it's like, you know, the guys with the tires and the weights behind them and they're trying to run, you know, football practice. And so, so I grabbed this guy by the scuff of his shirt, by the scuff of his jersey, and I threw him down in front of me and then I continued on. And then lo and behold, the whistle blew. And you can see on the film, I'm acting like I don't know what's going on. And I'm looking this way and the ref actually comes and he's like three feet from, from me. And I finally look and I say, yeah. <laughs> 
But then I get this yellow card, right? But then at this point, I say, did you see him holding my jersey? You know, and you know from sports and different things, the, re the one who retaliates usually gets caught and that kind of thing. So it's good news that Jesus is final judge and he will repay all sins because if you repaid it, you might get in trouble and the guy who did something to you or the woman who did something to you may go scot-free. And so it just doubles the pain and the agony that you're in. So it's good news that Jesus is your king, that he's just, and that justice will be 100% accurate. Now, number three, number three, your payback is unjust and inaccurate. This is why you don't pay back. You don't know all the facts. You don't know why somebody did it. You may not even be sure if somebody did that. You may not know whether somebody was trying to do something good for you and they ended up breaking something because they were trying to carry it for you. And you think they broke it on purpose and you're mad at them and you're exacting justice. Um, but God knows. He knows every hidden thing, whether good or evil, and he will just justly. So we just let him do that job. And then number four, forgiveness frees you. Forgiveness frees you emotionally and socially. And it makes you look big. When you forgive, you look big. Um, while grudges, that's your next line there, while grudges imprison you and steal from you joy and peace. Grudges imprison you and steal from you joy and peace. Ever talk to somebody who's still mad about something that went on like 30 years ago, right? You know, and every time this comes up, you know, you see the grit in their jaw, you know, uh, this. Um, but, but grudges imprison us. I, I, at one time, I had a friend named Steve Denacy. We're still friends on Facebook. And uh, we were friends uh, second through fifth grade. Uh, and, and we got in a fight, physical fight, um, at school. And it was I was in the wrong, and I was just being a bad kid. Um, and uh, But then we had, after school, we ha had to be in my mom's station wagon. Let's hear it for station wagons. For our scout troop to go somewhere. I forget where we were going, but I remember right where we were. And I remember we were both in the station wagon. And I'm, I'm imprisoned, right? Because I you know I got to face this guy that I was mean to in school. And I didn't know if he's going to retaliate or what it's going to be like. It was weird. It was hard relationally and just even physically I'm on guard and that kind of thing. And Steve looks up and says to me something really um, reconciliatory uh, and says, you know, something. And then immediately all the all the tension is gone and we're and we're friends again. This is what forgiveness does for us. I was in the wrong and he forgave me. I didn't even ask for it. And then we were we were friends again. Um, so Leviticus 19:18, do not seek revenge or or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's where it comes from. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. But it says, don't bear a grudge against your neighbor. Um, Genesis 15 or Genesis 50, Joseph. He doesn't bear a grudge against his brothers, who are the cause of him being uh, enslaved, uh, imprisoned, um, and he doesn't bear a grudge against them. And there's great rejoicing among the brothers uh, because Joseph doesn't bear a grudge because he forgives. Um, Galatians 5.22, it says, For the Spirit is joy and peace. Joy and peace are for the Spirit that are benefits to you as a Christian, led along by God's Spirit. And, uh, and as we do um, forgive, we get this joy relationally. We're no longer at war with somebody. We're at peace 
with somebody like Steve established with me. We were at peace. We were friends. We were friends again. Um, some of you know Ted Lasso in the end of the first season and, and, and the boss reveals, Ted's boss reveals to him that she's sought to sabotage him. That's the whole reason for their relationship. She just brought somebody in to sabotage, to be a, a scapegoat. And he looks up at her and he says, I forgive you. And, and, uh, and she's just, she's utterly in shock. And, and then, you know, later when she should fire him, she doesn't. Um, because forgiveness, it frees us and it gives us joy and it gives us peace. There's a sweetness to forgiving. Um, summary, summary. Having Jesus as your king, having Jesus as your king is good news because Jesus as king, being the almighty and powerful judge will make justice in the church today and after a life of lots of unfairness, he will make justice prevail. He's the king and all will come before him. That's good news. Let's pray.